Humanity has really embraced the radio spectrum. When you think about your daily life, you have a radio device in your pocket, multiple radio devices on your body. You are transmitting to and from radio towers all around your city. You have Wi-Fi in your home and then a bunch of other kinds of radio that's used by air traffic control and other radar systems like radio is everywhere. It's not going anywhere. Radio is getting even more ubiquitous over time. And there was a really interesting paper that I saw a couple of weeks ago written by uh, Dr. Michael Garrett. And it was about how alien civilizations could map planet Earth just by watching how our cell phone towers rise in the morning as different continents become operational in the morning with between the day and the night side. And you could actually not only sort of start to map out the continents of Earth, but you could start to even get a sense of the cultures of Earth when you think about various times, the ubiquity of our radio transmissions around planet Earth. So I had a very fascinating conversation with Dr. Michael Garrett. He is the Sir Bernard Lovell Chair of Astrophysics and the director of the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. And focuses on astrophysics, but as you will discover in this conversation, definitely a huge fan of SETI, searching for any kind of evidence of extraterrestrial civilizations. We talk about how humanity's just transmission in the radio spectrum has expanded over the decades and what we will be capable of looking for when the next generation telescopes come online, like the square kilometer array or the next generation very large array, we will suddenly be able to see out to 100 plus light years of range and detect planets like Earth boiling in radio transmissions across all of these spectrums. So fascinating conversation. Here it is. Enjoy. So from the perspective of an extra solar civilization, what would Earth look like in the radio spectrum? Um, well, I think I think it would look very noisy and, and very bright. So we already know that because, you know, I think 20 years ago, no, 30 years ago, we had the Galileo probe um, before it went to, to Jupiter. It kind of swung by the Earth and, and they made those measurements of, you know, the radio mission that was coming from the Earth. And I think Carol Sagan was the person that really convinced NASA that that was a good idea. Um, and I think it was a really good idea. You know, I don't know why they hadn't planned it right from the start. Um, but, but there you see that the thing that's really unusual about our planet um, is is really the fact that it has all this sort of narrow band, so these very narrow frequency radio signals coming from it. And I think as Sagan concluded in that paper, you know, that's the obvious thing that tells you that there's something weird going on on this planet, you know. And, and that weirdness is, you know, the fact that we have a technological civilization. That idea of using a spacecraft as it's doing one of its gravitational assist flybys of the Earth to examine the Earth from the perspective of an exoplanet and say, if we could see this from space, would we know there's life here? And that 
you're right. Uh, yeah, Carl Sagan sort of defined that idea, but it's been done many times now with different spacecraft as they all do their their flybys. It's like one of the you know test your camera and also figure out if there's life on Earth. And some spacecraft yeah. are able to, and some aren't. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think the you know thing about the, the the spacecraft that were going to Jupiter and Saturn, you know, like the the Pioneer Voyager Galileo, you know, they have radio instruments on board, and and of, you know if you're going to Mars, you probably don't have a radio instrument on board, but if you're going to the outer planets, because they're also producing lots of natural radio emission, then they already have those instruments on board, although they're typically at lower frequencies than the the frequencies that maybe we're most used to when we talk about you know when we look for signals you know, out there so they're, they're they're typically much lower frequencies than you know we, we think about when we're doing our own searches um but but yes and of course you know it's not the only indicator that there's something a bit weird going on here you know you have the fact that um you you detect oxygen um, when you look at the, the, the atmosphere, not at radio wavelengths, but, you know, further up in the infrared and the optical, you see, you know, an oxygen, well, you know, oxygen, oxygen re just reacts, you know, all the time. So if it's in the atmosphere and you detect it in the atmosphere, that usually means, well, something must be generating that oxygen continuously because otherwise it just reacts with other compounds on the planet. But if you see it there, then that tells you, yeah, something's produce, producing oxygen. And and the, and the thing that does that for us here on this planet is photosynthesis, um, mostly from plants, but also in the ocean, for example. So that that's another indicator. Um, the fact that we have water in the atmosphere, we have CO2. Um, also, you know, it, you, you could see all the sort of pollutants that we produce, like nitrous oxide, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, all in all, across the electromagnetic spectrum, there's a lot of indicators that this planet is a little bit different from maybe your typical planet, although we don't really know what a typical planet looks like. But, um, you know, there, there's all the indicators, I think, that, um, that you know, something strange going on here, even just in the optical and the sort of not the spectral line, but in the continuum, you know, the fact that, that we have lights and those lights shine into space, um, although that, that would be very difficult to detect. But if you were passing by in a spacecraft, you can certainly see that. And that that also tells you, you know, that there's there's something very interesting going on in, on this planet. And, and hopefully that's also the same on other planets. But, you know, you might have to search through many planets before you find that. Yeah, I mean, one glance at Earth at night and you would see all of the city lights and you would go, there's life there. Um, I mean, I know that in the past, the scientists were looking for, thinking about those things that you mentioned, oxygen present in the atmosphere of a planet, maybe ozone, maybe methane, various kinds of chemicals that are produced by natural sources, but then don't last very long in the atmosphere. And so there has to be something that is replenishing them. But as more and more eyes are on this work, it really seems like there are natural sources of almost every one of these potential biosignatures that have been found so far. And that the emphasis is starting to shift over to some of the ideas of the techno signatures, because for the longest time, searching for signals from aliens was considered ridiculous. And now there's there's actually a sizable amount of people that are that are doing this kind of work. And it feels like like searching for techno signatures is going to get the job done 
that you have. So like, why does a, does a techno signature give you a more certain answer than perhaps some kind of like biosignature? No, I mean, I, I think you've, you know, you, you, you kind of summed it up really well that we don't know very much about planets in a sense, um, but we do know that there are many different ways to produce, you know, some of the molecules that you talked about, like oxygen or uh, methane or, or, you know, um, and, and they may not be biological in origin. Um, they might just be outgassing, you know, from deep within inside a planet, for example, and you might just be lucky to see oxygen, you know, that day or that year. We even know from Mars, for example, like the, the levels of methane, they change very, very quickly from one day to, to the other or from one part of the planet to the other. Um, whether that's biological or not, or whether it's just some intrinsic property of the, you know, the fact that the planet... Um, deep down contains those kind of uh, molecules and, you know, releases them, you know, due to certain conditions like spring coming or summer or whatever. Um, so, so I think it's really complicated and I think it will remain complicated for a long time. And I think there will be multiple interpretations for those biosignatures for, for a long time as well. Um, the, the, the thing about the technosignatures and, the, and, you know, the really definitive thing about technosignatures is that you, know, you really need a technology behind them to produce them. Nature just doesn't produce narrowband radio signals. You know, it just doesn't happen, you know. And we've been looking at the radio sky for, you know, 100 years or uh, almost 100 years. And we know really what, what, what radio stuff does, what planets do in the radio, what stars do in the radio, what galaxies do in the radio. And although they, you know, they, they, they produce spectral lines, yeah, but they never produce anything like the kind of artificial signals that we produce that, you know, Carol Sagan detected with Galileo when it came back. You know, these really narrow band, very, you know, putting a lot of power into just a few channels, few frequency channels, you know, nature's not going to do that. I mean, why would it do that? There's really no reason. There's no mechanism for it to do that. The only way you can do that is with technology. So I think it, I think it's a game changer in a sense that, you know, if you detect something like that, you, you, you there's, there's really, you would think of well, what could be the natural <laughs> explanation for this, but I think you'd be hard pushed to come up with something that was kind of reasonable, that wasn't a bit convoluted and a bit complicated. And the obvious thing is that, yeah, this is technology that, that produces this. And you're also right that, um, you know, there's a real rejuvenation in the, in the techno-signature research that's happening um, across the world. Um, and, and, you know, for example, you know, pro projects like Breakthrough Listen, I think, have absolutely transformed, um, you know, what's happening, not just in the U.S., but actually coming out and getting all the interest, a huge amount of interest throughout the world, all over the world in this area, and just nurturing that. And you see that, you know, the people that are doing SETI or technosignature sort of surveys today, um, first of all, there's a lot more people doing that. Um, they're much more distributed across the planet. Um, and, and often they're coming from sort of traditional astronomy, astronomy survey backgrounds. 
So it, it's quite a different place now than it was maybe even 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago. So there's a, there's a, there's a much different perspective on how we should be doing these surveys. And also there, there, there are more resources through, you know, projects like Breakthrough Listen and there's access to, you know, the best telescopes on the planet. Uh, and in addition to that, um, you know, getting the right people who are interested in, in this topic who would never have been employed in this topic before. But, you know, not just the astronomers, but also people with really good technical backgrounds and good computing and software and analysis and AI, just bringing that all together, bringing them with these really, you know, top-notch telescopes, having a real professional attitude to the way it should be done, just like a, a normal astronomical survey attitude. Bringing all those together means, I mean, I feel that we really only just started on the SETI journey in the last few years, to be honest. Yeah, it feels very different, though, than than what it did in, in the past. Like, when I used to interview astronomers who were interested in this kind of thing, we'd have to talk about their main research. And then in hushed tones, we would talk about searching for mm. aliens because they yeah. were fans of that idea. And maybe there's a couple of papers every now and then, but now it, it really does feel like a renaissance. So how do earthlings, like how are we the brightest? What do you think is like the most obvious techno signature that humanity is sending out into space right now? So I think probably it's, you know, we're obviously producing a lot of radio waves, right? Um, but the most, the most powerful radio waves we send out are also kind of the, the rarest. So, you know, we're sending bright signals out to maybe Voyager, you know, through the DSN, the Deep Space Network. And maybe that happens, I don't know, a couple of times a day or, you know, you know, it, it doesn't happen all the time, right? Um, so you have to be, if you're an extraterrestrial, you have to be really lucky to sort of intercept that signal as it, as it comes through. Um, so those bright, powerful signals like the DSN, but also radar signals, you know, they're quite sort of sort of pointed on the sky. They're not there all the time. They're at certain frequencies. Um, those happen quite rarely, but they're probably the sort of big, obvious thing. If you've got a telescope that can see all of the sky, for example, and is on all of the time, then maybe those would be the easiest things to detect just because they're the brightest things, you know, they're the things that go boom, you know. But but you might have to wait a long time before you detect them um, from our planet, but also any other planets that are, are, are out there. You know, field of view, the amount of sky you can see would be really important um, in, 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 in this. And then you have... Then you have the stuff that we've been talking about recently, which is the fact that, you know, we've all got these, you know, these mobile phones, you know, everyone's got it on their back pocket or, you know, you've got your, my laptop, for example, your laptop using Wi-Fi. You've got a little box in your house that's producing a lot of radio waves. Um, you've got all the mobile towers that are connecting all these devices together. So we have... We have these sort of very not so bright sources, you know, fainter sources, but they're everywhere. You know, no matter where you go, um, you're totally surrounded by all this, all these radio waves being produced by these low-level devices. So you have this 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 background 
coming from the earth that we didn't have, you know, 20 years ago. We had it a little bit, but, but you know, that's just increasing enormously from the fact that, they, you know, there are billions of these things. Right. You know, billions of yeah. them. For, for the podcast um, listeners, he's holding up a smartphone. But yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so there's, there's absolutely billions of those. There's, there's millions of mobile towers that mm. connect all the smartphones together. Um, and then, well, how many Wi-Fi systems are? I don't even know a number for that. But basically, most houses on the planet probably have one. So we're talking about billions of devices again. And, and they're all producing this sort of low-level emission. But I think that's really interesting because we, we didn't have that, you know, 30 years ago. You know, we just did not have that. So that's something that has really just appeared um, there's no sign that this is something that's kind of going to stabilize. You know, it seems like we have a real thirst for for bandwidth, you know, video, you know, so you need to have, you know, occupy lots of frequencies to convey that information. Um, so I think this, this is kind of, the, you know, the, the new kid on the block in terms of techno signatures at this very low level. But it's there and it's it's spreading its wings, if you like. You know, it's you know, it used to be a sort of narrow frequency range, but you know, you go from 3G to 4G systems to 5G mobile systems. And the main thing that happens there is, you know, they're just using you know you know more and more frequency space. So so you know, th this is a really interesting development. I think it's really interesting because you know, would we have predicted that 30 years ago? Maybe some people would have, um, but most people, you know, felt that radio was on the decline. You know, I, I, I listen to people a lot that say, oh, yeah, well, we don't use radio any longer. And I'm thinking, well, we don't use radio. I mean, we're totally immersed in radio waves everywhere we go. Um, whether we're inside our houses or we're outside our houses, we're totally immersed in radio waves. And yes, we don't use it so much in the radio. We don't use it so much for TV because there are cable systems. But, you know, this whole mo mobile communication system, Wi-Fi systems, totally dom dominated by radio. Um, so we're becoming much, much brighter in the radio, I would argue, than, than fainter, as some people have argued, I think, incorrectly so let's, uh, in the recent past. Yeah, so let's talk about your research then. So you worked out like a map of what the Earth would look like as the Earth is turning, seen from an alien perspective. What would they see? Well, I mean, we were, I mean, I was inspired by this old paper from 1978 by Sullivan um, et al., um, it was published in Science. It's uh, you know if you if you haven't seen it, it's a great paper. It, you know th that paper you know also tried to think well you know what would aliens see if you know they were observing us at this point in time you know nineteen seventy eight or or whatever, and you know they concluded the brightest sources would have been you know the the bright TV transmitters and the bright radar uh, radio transmitters at the time. Um, this was well before you know cable TV or satellite TV. You know those 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 were the way the ways that you you sort of listen to the radio or you watch the TV and radar systems. 
Uh, the radar systems are still with us for obvious reasons. Um, and I think that the TV and radio are also there, but they've, they've changed somewhat. You know, like we have a lot of digital systems and things like that rather than the analog systems. But they're actually also there as well. Um, but, the, but the thing that I was really interested in was, you know, this was a great paper. Um, it showed you the fact that, you know, the radio emission would vary as a function of time for any alien just because the Earth rotates. And, and so, you know, sometimes you see areas of the Earth where there were more TV transmitters and sometimes you saw places where there were less TV transmitters. So there was a sort of modulation in the signal that an alien would detect, you know, if it had a single dish radio telescope pointed towards the Earth. Um and, you know, they worked out also that you, know, you could probably discern certain things um, from, from those signals, the fact that some areas of the Earth seem to use, you know, one frequency and then other areas of the Earth used another frequency. They might have got the idea that, you know, there, that there was different um, standards, you know, and maybe different countries or, or different regions and things like that. Oh, that's also really interesting. Oh, yeah, that yeah. you could learn a bit about the culture yeah. you, just by could, sensing the radio transmissions. I don't think we've really done a good job also now on exactly everything that you could discern from this. I, I mean, I, when I see what, you know, astronomers do when they when they look at data and they look at data really carefully and, and the nuances they can pick out of the data, I think you could do a really good job um, you know, if you did, you know, especially if you have very fine time resolution, you know, that you can see that signal, how it changes, you know, you could discern things like um, not just the fact that maybe there were different countries and different standards, but also that most of us want to live on the on the coast um, of, of, of these big continents. You know, we're mostly most of the cities are actually the big cities are really not in the in the middle of the land regions, but actually on the outskirts where, you know, I guess where we started, where we were fishing or whatever. I don't know exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm sure. And obviously you just pick up the fact that the, you know, the earth rotation is, you know, goes around on its axis once every 24 hours or 20, you know, whatever. Um, so you, you could discern quite a lot from that and yeah we were inspired to try and redo that this this beautiful paper from 1978 you know by by Walt Sullivan in 19 and published in science we, we were really kind of inspired to think about well what's different you know now compared to then and the obvious thing to me was not that radio had got fainter but actually that radio had got brighter and it got brighter with this very kind of weird, in a sense, very distributed sort of system of mobile towers, um, but also, you know, individual mobile devices. And, and they sort of culturally, that's quite interesting as well, because the distribution of those is quite different from the way things were in the mid-1970s, where... There was the domination by North America and by Western Europe, you know, the TV and radio transmitters. They basically dominated the predicted signal. And now you see a kind of much more even uh, distribution, you know, obviously not in the oceans. So, the, you know, if you're an alien and the Pacific crosses in front of you, then it's very quiet still. Um, but, you know, you, you only have to wait a few hours and then, you know, all, you know, all the major landmasses come into view and then your signal, you know, picks up again. 
Um, but but that signals are really quite different from the TV and radio signals that we had then in the sense that a lot of the developing countries, um, certainly Asia, of course, and, and but 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 Africa, for example, where mobile communications are really so important for the for the economy, for the culture, for the communication, they are probably even more important than it is for you know other other parts of the world. That um, you know you see that there's emission coming from from these places where in the past, at least in the TV and the radio, the, these were quite quiet areas, but Nowadays, these are actually quite bright areas of emission. And when we think about these radio signals traveling outward in space like a sphere, and this every year that goes by, they've moved one more light year out. And this is a, a trope that's been used in science fiction to, to have the aliens discover us and then come to visit or or return the Voyager spacecraft to us or or uh, what have you. And but like if you took Dodro Bank and flew it out into space and then looked back towards the, the solar system, how, how, at what point would you no longer be able to detect the emissions coming from planet Earth? Like what do you think the range is with our current and maybe, you know, maybe the fast telescope? Like I think about like the current capability of, of radio telescopes on Earth to detect and start building this kind of a map, how far, how far can we see? So I think you know if you took the fast radio telescope, for example, um, you know those radar systems are going to be still bright. Um, you know, I, I would imagine you know a hundred light years, you're still able to detect our radar systems hmm. reasonably easily. Um, the mobile stuff that I've been talking about, that's 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 much fainter. So you you'd only be able to detect that, I think, within yeah, a light year or a few light years, for example. You know, um, that would that would be more difficult. But what about um, say when the square kilometer array comes online? So the SKA, I mean that 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 will that would be very capable in many different ways. So um, you know that should be able to detect those. Those radar systems, you know, also, you know, at a hundred light years, a few hundred light years, but but you know, differences with the SKA is that you'll be able to sort of pinpoint the location. With fast, you could detect the signal, but you wouldn't really know where it's coming from. You just know that it's somewhere within that that beam that it put, puts on the sky. But with the SKA and, and later, you know, with NGVLA, for example, hopefully that also gets built, then you'll be able to really absolutely pinpoint the location. You'll be able to pinpoint the location so that, you know, it wouldn't just be, you know, you, you, you if it was coming from a star or a planet going around a star, you'd see radio emission coming from something that was offset from, a, you know, from a star in your, your field of view. And if you waited, you know, depending on the distances, you know, you'd see it moving as well with the SKA. So localization um, is really, really important. Um, and, and single dishes, even fast, just doesn't do that for you. If you start using multiple telescopes, then you're, you're going to be able to do really interesting things that, you know, you might have an interesting signal from a single dish. It might look artificial, um, but you don't really know what it's, where it's coming from. So to be absolutely definitively sure 
that it is what you think it is, i.e., you know, another technological civilization out there. I think localization, you know, pinpointing the location of that signal and and, and also, you know, watching that signal move, uh, possibly coming and going, you know, if you're if your planet's if it's on a planet, um, or you know, if it's on a spacecraft, see it move at you know, I don't. It doesn't have to move. You know, um, at a, a large fraction of the speed of light. You know, but if it's moving like Voyager or something like that, then you could discern that certainly with you know very long baseline interferometry, where you have telescopes. You know, across the across the planet. Um, to me, that's the thing that we should be kind of preparing for. That we need to start thinking about how we're going to do that because, you know, we 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 are kind of you know in this period of making these big surveys with, you know, the Green Bank Telescope, with the Parkes Telescope, um, we're sort of maybe on, you know, that boundary of going from non-detection to detection. So we need to start thinking about all the things that we're going to want to do when that detection happens and, and prepare for it. Yeah, I mean, when you think about how many star systems there are within one light year of us, and the answer is none. But when you think about how many stars there are within 100 light years of us, now we're in the tens of thousands, possibly 100,000 stars within 100 light years of, of Earth. And so the number of targets that we can study goes up exponentially. And I'm sure tests and and other telescopes have found some interesting candidates that we would love to do be able to do some follow up observations with these. Um, and for for those of you who missed it, you know, you mentioned, you know, there's the the very sorry, the uh, the square kilometer array, the SKA, and then this, mm. this one in North America, the next generation, very large array, when you think about the yeah. when you think about contact and the and Jody Foster sitting in front of all of those amazing dishes, that yeah. but spread out across North America with a vastly wider series. And this is, you know, so we're going to have not just the one, but the two super radio telescopes and, 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 and also covering, you know, you know, a very wide frequency range. So the SK sort of covering the more traditional range, you know, maybe up to 20 gigahertz, but NGVLA going from 20 gigahertz up to, you know, hundred gigahertz. Um, I think, you know, we, we, you know, one of the things that we see, you know, today on this planet is, you know, that move towards, you know, broader band mobile communication systems, which means you have to go to higher frequencies to get that bandwidth. Um, so, you know, we, you know, we need to be able to do this techno signature search, not just at low frequencies, but also at the higher frequencies. And I would, well, I, you know, obviously you want to do it across the electromagnetic spectrum. But, you know, I think we also need to be thinking of higher frequencies in the NGVLA. We need to be thinking about ALMA um, because although, you know, we don't do much communication at those really high frequencies on the planet because we have a lot of water vapor, so it doesn't really work very well. But when you're in space, when you're above the atmosphere, um, communicating at those really high frequencies like point to point, you know, within a solar system, I don't mean like across the galaxy, but, you know, between one star and another star or within a solar system, those, those, those high frequencies become interesting because they have all the nice properties of radio waves. 
Um, but they also, you can convey a lot of information on them, you know, because they're so high frequency. They've got a lot of bandwidth. Like x-rays? There. Like if you, like, are you, is that how high a bandwidth? I'm not, I'm not thinking of x-rays, but, um, well, who knows? I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule, <laughs> wouldn't rule anything yeah. out, to be honest. But I'm just thinking of like, you know, we, we're kind of focused at the moment on sort of this gigahertz regime that's you know that's where our microwaves work that's where our telephones work etc but you know why not you know go three orders of magnitude higher up to the terahertz range you know that's like the body scanners at, at airports a little bit further down than that um but you know those also have the capacity to convey information they just we just don't use them here because um, they don't go very far, you know, because they get impeded by all the water molecules that we have in the atmosphere. But if you go into space, for example, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of space communications, you know, in the next few decades that are using those kind of frequencies um, to convey information. Because then you're, you know, above the atmosphere and you're just point to point in space in a vacuum. Um, so we go to much higher frequencies at some point pretty soon, I think. I mean, we're seeing the rise of these satellite mega constellations like Starlink and the upcoming Kuiper, and and I'm sure the Chinese are building their version of this. How do you think that will change? Because now suddenly you no longer have your continents. You now just have this buzzing cloud of satellites. Yeah, I, I think it's... It's incredibly exciting. I mean, it's in some sense, it's really bad for radio astronomy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for, for your yeah. needs at Dodrell Bank, it is not good. But. No, it's not good. But um, it's also exciting in a sense because you're seeing the, evol the technological evolution of a planet kind of in front of your eyes. In a lifetime, you've gone from, oh, well, TV and radio is it and, and radar. And then, you know, you think, oh, well, mobile communications, that's also a big thing now, you know, like 30 years later. And then maybe, you know, 10, 20 years later after that, we're thinking about these constellations. So everything's evolving. Everything's changing. Um, but radio is still quite, you know, radio is the big, the big common denominator between, you know, from Marconi all the way to Musk, you know, M to M, if you like, um, that the radio waves are still the, the basis of, of that communication. And I, I find that, you know, kind of challenging because, you know, radio astronomy is going to find it difficult to operate with all those satellites, you know, beaming down around 10 gigahertz, you know, also that shift to the higher frequencies that we talked about earlier. Um and, you know, what, what does it mean? What will that look like to, you know, to an outside, another technical civilization looking at our planet? What's that going to look like? Well, you know, the, those satellites are all pointed down towards the Earth. Um, so, but there will all obviously be kind of leakage, you know, beyond the Earth at certain, at certain points. Um, plus, there will be, I'm sure, you know, there will be uplinks to those satellites happening, you know, to command them and et cetera, et cetera. There may be intercommunication links between those satellites, I would imagine, um, also for new applications, I think. Um, so, I, I mean, my feeling is, yeah, we, we want to model this. I'm not sure exactly how to model it at the moment. It sounds like a, the, think, your next paper in the in the works. Yeah, I think it will be our next paper at some point. Um, but I think 
it, it, you know, the bottom line is you can't have all that activity. You can't have 100,000 Starlink satellites in orbit by the end of the decade. Plus, as you mentioned, you know, I, I mean, I think there are like two or three Chinese systems as well that have been talked about on the same scale. There's um, OneWeb as well as Starlink. I'm sure Europe is probably thinking about this as well. So how many satellites are we going to have in low Earth orbit before the end of the decade? We, we, you know, it's definitely many, you know, several hundreds of thousands of satellites. It could be even a million mm-hmm. satellites <laughs> in low Earth orbit, be, you know, before the end of the decade. Yeah, if they organize their constellations in a way that fits within the with shells and and stick to your lane, there could be tens of millions. Like there's room. Space is big. There's room. As long as you don't go helter skelter about it, then there could be a lot of satellites up there. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be incredibly interesting because they're all using radio waves to do whatever it is they're doing. And, and a lot of those radio waves won't reach their destination, just like, it, you know, you know, radar systems, they send out, you know, a lot of radio waves, but only a tiny fraction ever comes back. And, you know, I think obviously we need to do the modeling of these systems to see how they work. But to me, it means that from an alien perspective, there's going to be this kind of very red hot sort of potato out there in space. Um, that is our planet and you know i i think it just it certainly makes us more detectable than we've ever been before yeah well That's and, for sure. and like intrinsically brighter like like before we had very individual very powerful radio transmitters or television transmitters yeah but but this makes us bright just as an entire planet yeah, it makes us bright, but it also just across all frequencies as well. So, you know, we'll be, you know, it's not like radar that maybe is only working, you know, at a few megahertz at, you know, 1200 megahertz, you know, with a few megahertz bandwidth. This whole, you know, the constellations and the Wi-Fi and the mobile devices and going from 4G to 5G to 6G to 7G, whatever, whatever, however that goes, you know, they're just consuming spectrum, you know, so they're, and they're going to higher frequencies and, you know, it's, it, it's an absolute measure of the technological development of this planet, you know. People always make this argument that, the reason we don't see alien civilizations is because they they go to wires, they go to fiber optics, they go dark from from an external perspective. That sounds impossible to me with everything shifting to satellites. And then as we extrapolate to a solar system spanning civilization, what are you going to do? Run fiber optic cables from here to Jupiter? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think you're right. Um, it's really difficult. And, and the fact is that humans definitely want mobile communication systems in their back pocket. So I don't think you're going to be happy with a fiber, you know, trailing a fiber around. You want, you know, it's a mobile system because, yeah, it's mobile. You want to bring it wherever you want to go. And you don't want to wire. So, you know, wireless in in a sense, you know, that old-fashioned term, um, you know, really beats wires every time. You want to be wireless. You, you also, if you want to charge your telephone, you don't want wires. If you want to communicate, you don't want wires because it gives you the freedom to do whatever you want to do, but be connected 
So, um, you know, I'm sure fibers have their place. There's no doubt about that. Um, but when you're outside and you're moving around, the fact that radio waves can, you know, you, you know, they are able to typically, you know, traverse lots of different media like windows or even thin walls, not thick walls typically, but thin walls that they can bend round corners from one room to the next. You know, you, you have, you know, one Wi-Fi system typically does a, a modern house and also in your garden and all that, you know, radio just has that advantage um, of being really good at going round corners and keeping you connected it's difficult to see how, you know, fibers or wires would ever be able to do that. And, and yeah, I just don't, I just don't yeah, see that. Yeah. Possible. So then let's sort of project forward and think about the future. Like if is we we're going to have this gigantic constellation of satellites shortly, we will be setting up some sort of research station on the moon. We'll set up research station on Mars, on nearby asteroids. Fast forward 100 years from now, 200 years from now, and we will potentially have humanity across the solar system interacting, communicating. Based on sort of your understanding of what works best in space, what does that look like? You know, if Earth becomes this very hot, um, many bandwidth object that's bright in the radio spectrum, an entire solar system spanning civilization, what would that look like? Yeah, I think, you know, if you look 100 years from now, as you say, I mean, hopefully, hopefully if things keep on going reasonably well. Yeah, if the robots let us do this. <laughs> if AI or whatever yeah, lets yeah. us, you know, yeah. get there, or, or we don't fight each other too often or whatever. Um, you know, the, you know the, the possibilities are just amazing, I think. And, you know, as you say, you know, you know, going to the moon, going to Mars, occupying, you know, a significant fraction of the solar system, being present there, um, maybe mining asteroids or, or whatever whatever we want to do. Um, you, we're going to have to be able to communicate to be able to do those things. So um, I'm not sure that radio will be the way that we do that because I think as we go into space that um, a lot of the stuff that we'll do is kind of point to point, planet to planet or space, spacecraft to spacecraft, so above the atmospheres of, of these planets. So I think, for example, laser communications are going to, you know, at some point there will be sort of exponential growth in, in, in that area, I would imagine. Radio will always be there just because of the fact it does stuff that higher frequencies are not able to do. But I think we will see, you know, that continuous shift towards higher frequencies and going not just into, you know, the, the millimeter range, but into the infrared, even into the optical, um, but definitely into the, into the infrared. Um, so, yeah, we're going to become brighter at all frequencies, um, so, and yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's hard to extrapolate beyond maybe a few, a few decades, to be honest, we yeah, probably stupid to even try. Yeah. But, be I don't mind getting a little stupid, but, yeah. but, 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 but I guess, you know, when you think about this, this shift, like I think 20 years ago, the idea was let's look for a directed transmission, some alien civilization that is sending us a message. And now it really feels like the emphasis is starting to move towards let's search for leaked 
transmissions not intended for us. Do you think that's feasible or, or the better path forward at this point? I mean, to be honest, I think we, we need to try everything, right? Because, <laughs> you know, we haven't detected anything. So we absolutely have no idea where it's coming from, what it will be, you know, whether it will be radio or whatever. So I'm, I'm absolutely kind of agnostic about, you know, we should be doing, you know, this, that or the next thing. I feel that we need to have open, be open minded, um, that we need to try and do everything that we can do with the technology that we have. I don't think there's a silly sort of techno signature SETI idea. I don't think that exists. Maybe if you detect a signal, such a thing exists. But until then, you know, everybody um, has a good idea on on this. Um, so, yeah, no, I think um, leakage radiation, you know, does has, have the advantage that we know that we do this. We don't send beacons really very often out into space. And if we do, then we do it for, you know, very short periods of time, a few minutes and maybe a few minutes every decade or so. You know, the cadence is really, really small. Um, so, you know, looking for leakage radiation, I think, is uh, that's something we should be thinking about because, you know, every technological civilization is going to have such a thing, certainly when they're at our stage of development. Maybe later on they can cloak themselves in, in, in some way if they want to do that, but at least we know that we're pretty open about being here in a sense. Um, but that would be difficult for us to, to stop it. We don't have the technology to do that. Um, so I think leakage radiation is also is really interesting. And also, I think it, it sits maybe a little better um, in comparison to biosignatures as well, you know, in the sense that, you know, biosignatures is also not something that's kind of um, predetermined or you require someone to do something. It's just a natural implication of having life on a planet in the same way a techno signature is a, a sort of natural application of having, an, an, you know, an intelligent technical life form on a planet. So you would imagine that there's much more chance of detecting those leakage signals. Oxygen is also a kind of leakage signal in a sense. So um, it's not, not, none of these things are incredibly, incredibly bright. So they're difficult to detect, but you know, there might be a lot of them out there to detect. It, you know, a lot of people are who are sort of young in their career, thinking of choosing science as a career, interested in astronomy, and fascinated by the search for, for aliens. I think it is the uh, one of the most possible, most important questions we can possibly ask in science is, is, are we alone in the universe? What's the best way for a person who is excited about these ideas and is maybe an undergraduate in university now and wants to make a career of being an alien hunter? What's the what's a good way to go about it? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, get a good physics degree or a good astrophysics degree, first of all. Um, you know, probably you need to go and think about doing a PhD. Uh, I don't think you need to go directly into sort of SETI or techno signatures when you do your PhD. I think you can do it after you've done your PhD. I think that's almost healthy in a sense, because, you know, PhD gives you, you know, you're specializing typically on something, but you're also learning 
at a higher level more about astronomy and, and astrophysics and our careers tend to sort of sort of converge more and more onto onto sort of particular things that we're interested in so I, I always think it's good to start as broad as you can you know you have your undergraduate degree you have your graduate studies and you begin to focus more and more um, but you know after your PhD or even at your PhD stage you know being interested and in wanting to do techno signatures you know there's nothing embarrassing about that yeah you know? not anymore there, it's, it's perfectly no, legitimate I mean, this, is a, this is a big question and people you know normal people are interested in it they want to know the answer they expect people that know how to do this kind of stuff to do it um, it's a good use of public funding just because people want to know the answer. They're interested in it. Um, it's it's just like, you know, right up there in terms of what the public wants. And the public pays for what we do. And we cannot have some kind of high ground where we think, oh, yeah, you know, um, variable star studies are much more interesting than working out whether we're alone in the universe. You know, I'm sure variable star studies are really interesting. But, uh, you know, I think we do have to realize, you know, who pays, you know, our wages at the end of the week. Um, and we have to do also, we have to do what we're interested in, not just what we think we're interested in, but actually the stuff that motivated us. You know, when we were 10 years old or, you know, or whatever, you know, for me, you know, um, apart from Star Trek motivating me and Star Trek was very much about going out there, um, trying to find out is there life out there? What kind of life is out there? Those are the things that still motivate me now, you know, almost 50 years sort of further on. And I know that other young people are like that as well. And there's a lot of other stuff that you're going to discover, you know, on the sidelines of that pursuit. Um, I think it's really important that people that do this have a broad understanding of astronomy um, to be able to, you know, understand what's artificial and what's natural. You know, we have to combine that. But we should we, we just have to get away from this idea that this kind of science is somehow not quite as good as, you know, other other kinds of more traditional sciences, because, you know, eventually we're going to, I think, I hope we're going to detect something. It's a bit like gravitational waves. It took decades for people to detect gravitational waves. It took interferometry to come along before we could detect gravitational waves. And people worked on it for many, many years. And I think SETI's at the same point at the moment. The fact that we have dedicated people, we have dedicated resources, we have great telescopes, we've got fantastic back-end digital systems, we've got great software, computing, we've got AI, all these things are coming together. Um, exponentially, our capacity and capability increases year on year on year. You know, if there is a detection out there to be made, we're getting closer to it exponentially. And yeah. once we make that detection, the world will be a different place. Yeah, it's uh, back to that Arthur C. Clarke quote that either we're alone in the universe or we aren't. Yeah. And either yeah. possibility is terrifying and yeah. exciting. So, yeah. well, uh, Michael, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, good luck with your hunt for, uh, for signals. And uh, if you do find aliens, would you, would you let us know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. <laughs> perfect. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. 
You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to just Paul Davis, Vlad Shibelin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbeoff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.